The call to defund the police is, I think, an abolitionist uh, demand, but it reflects only one aspect of uh, the process represented by uh, the demand. Defunding the police is not simply about withdrawing funding for law enforcement and doing nothing else. It's about shifting public funds to new services and, and, and new institutions, uh, mental health counselors uh, who um, can respond to people who are in crisis without arms. Uh, it's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. Uh, all of these things help to create security and safety. Um, it's about learning that safety, safeguarded by violence, is not really safety. Incarceration, put everybody out on the street, it is reorganizing how we live our lives together in the world. And this is something that people are doing in a variety of ways throughout the United States and around the planet already. It is not a pie in the sky dream. It is actually something that is practical and achievable in the city of New York, in Texas, in South Africa, around the world. parts of the world, what one sees is a very simple fact. Where life is precious, life is precious. In places where the state, the government, municipalities, social justice organizations, faith communities, labor unions work together to lift up human life, the incidents of crime and punishment, including the incidents of interpersonal harm, are less likely to occur. And this is in, in places where uh, uh, populations are every bit as diverse as in the United States. We also see that in places where inequality is the deepest, the use of prison and punishment is the greatest. Nowhere, however, gets even close to the United States. ideologically to say, and I struggle with this every day, so I don't even have an answer to your question really as much as I can tell you it's a struggle for me, right? Because I sit here and say, well, 
healthcare reform in prison. Did they, let me let me put it differently to be clear. The the substance of the, the, the substance of the question, the implicit part of the question is, if we keep doing prison reforms, we will convince the world that prisons can be reformed, that there's something salvageable about prison. Right? That's the point. Right? And so the challenge is, if we keep allowing reforms and fighting for reforms, and the world will say, okay, prison is bad, but it's fixable. This is not something that's, that's this is something that's, um, it's, it's, it's like white supremacy. It's like whiteness, right? Really, it's an idea that needs to be destroyed. It can't be, really be repaired, right? When we think about capitalism, it's a system that's actually so fundamentally corrupt that it can't be repaired. It can't be just regulated. It actually needs to be uprooted, right? I mean, that's the problem. But we keep convincing ourselves through reform that something else is possible. But the problem is, it's not just an ideological tension. People would really, people's lives would be better with healthcare. People would be, lives are better when we fight against prisoner abuse. People's lives are better when we protect them from HIV AIDS. People's lives are better when we give them access to libraries, right? So, so, so the question is, at what level do we decide between yielding to particular reforms for the benefit of making people's lives better and more livable? And to what extent do we have to hold on to a broader principle of, of prison abolition? Say this prison as such cannot work. For me, it's not either or, it's both and. And, and I think that speaks to the, the, the sort of pedagogical dimension of this. It, there's something uh, that, that comes down to really sort of the, the lessons and the teaching that happen through our activism and through our work. And, and I mean that in two ways. One, our activism tells the world what's important. The, the, the causes that we choose and the way we approach those causes gives the world an understanding of what's possible with prison reform, what's possible with prison abolition, what's possible with prison nurse. So when we do this work, I think it has to come with prison education, the other type of pedagogy I'm talking about. In other words, we have to actively educate the public about prison. We have to actively educate the world about what's possible. Because, you know, Frederick Jameson said it is easier for people to imagine the end of the world itself than to imagine the end of capitalism. But I think it's equally true about prison. I think people can't imagine a world outside of prison. And I think having a visionary lens is really important, thinking ahead and thinking about what are we doing that's not just about the next year or the next five years or 10 years, what are we doing in the next 100 years or 200 years? Because I think that oftentimes, especially things like legality, it's very easy to get caught just so focused on all of the moving parts that it's hard to see the larger framework. step back. Slavery was a law in this country, and folks dealt with the minutia of slavery as a law. That there were disputes about, well, how do we apply this in this case? And lawyers were arguing for or against, but they were arguing under the law of slavery. Whether they were trying to make it better, uphold the status quo, make it worse, they were still legitimizing the existence of slavery. And I think, obviously, hundreds of years into the future, 
we reject the entire basis of legality for slavery, right? Like, it doesn't matter what arguments you are having because the foundation of slavery is unjust. So I think it is important to have that kind of long-term vision so that as we are engaging and arguing legally, which we have to do, we are keeping in mind, are we only arguing within the parameters of what's given to us? Are we only arguing about the ways to make a kinder, gentler slavery, the ways to soften atrocity? Or are we saying, what are the ways we can utilize the law to ultimately, fundamentally change it and eliminate injustice? dismantling, getting rid of, but it's about re-envisioning. It's about building anew. And I would argue that abolition is a feminist uh, strategy. Uh, and one sees in these abolitionist demands that are, are emerging the pivotal influence of of feminist uh, theories and practices. I want us to see feminism not only as addressing um, issues of gender, uh, but rather as a methodological approach uh, of, of understanding the intersectionality of, 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 of struggles uh, and, 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 and issues. Uh,
organization, not uh, rec recognizing that, uh, that threats to safety, threats to security come uh, not primarily from what is defined as crime, but rather from the failure of, of, of institutions in our country to address issues of health, issues of, of, of violence, education, etc. So abolition is really about rethinking the kind of future we want, the social future, the economic uh, future, the political future. It's about revolution, I would argue. in the United States and around the world today are people like Mariam Kaba and Andrea Smith and Kelly Gillespie and others who came out of work against domestic violence, i.e. it was in doing work to try to fight against violence and harm that they realized abolition was the only way to resolve the problems that were not being resolved by having better, faster, more swift and sure punishment when somebody harmed somebody else. What does it mean to call oneself an abolitionist? The word doesn't mean much today, and it certainly doesn't mean what it meant 150 years ago. Then it meant an end to what some have called America's original sin, slavery. Today, well, it's not a common term today, but it should be. It was the nation's first biracial movement built by blacks and whites to oppose the evil of slavery. But it's important for us today to recognize that when they were active during the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, they were portrayed in the press and spoken about by prominent men in power as madmen and crazy women who dared to oppose something so fundamental to American wealth like slavery. Abraham Lincoln, speaking at New York's Cooper Union before his election, depicted John Brown as a madman and not a member of the Republican Party. It was only after the war that abolitionists were regarded as sane people, not before. There's a lesson here, that is, don't worry about what people in power or media say about you. Ask yourself, is what you're doing is right? It's right to oppose mass incarceration. It's right to seek to abolish the racist death penalty. It's right to fight against state repression. And the right time to do that is now.
Yeah, I think that when you live in a capitalist society, everything becomes a commodity, including human beings. And I think that, you know, it's very clear that, you know, and I think there's been a lot of amazing scholarship and work done about this, the connections between systems of racial oppression like slavery and the prison system and recognizing that the prison system is not about safety. It's not about reducing crime. It's about exploitation and control of potentially rebellious communities. And, you know, folks like Angela Davis, Ruthie Gilmore, Michelle Alexander have, have moved these conversations in the public. And so I think it's, it's important to have a historical and larger framework around it so that we can see it's not just that people are being thrown away, it's that certain folks especially are being thrown away because they were never wanted in the first place. Defunding the police means what it says. It doesn't mean taking money from police and then moving on to other institutions that act like police, like child welfare services or um, healthcare responses that are um, very controlling. I've spoken a lot to young women who have been controlled by both the mental health system and police, and they say, you know, they can't really often tell where they are. They say when they're in the hospital, the sheets are a little more comfortable than in the jail, but it's the same feeling, whether it's handcuffs or Haldol, which is a drug that's used to control people sometimes. So we need to be careful that we're not just defunding police departments, but that we're defunding policing. And what that means in the context of a pandemic, where we're facing the biggest economic crisis of our lifetimes, cities need to be thinking about what resources and programs we're prioritizing that will help that will protect black life, that will defend black life. Because not only is black life being targeted by explicit state violence and explicit white supremacist violence, it's being targeted by structural violence, denying housing, healthcare. And if black people who are also the most at risk from those factors and from being essential workers who don't have the privilege of staying home and working from home and doing all the things that people of more privilege can do, means that black people are being consigned to death on every front. Um, pandemic, economic crisis, police violence. And so we need to reallocate resources to defend Black lives, and that means putting them into things that will help Black communities survive this pandemic. So it can't be that in New York City, for instance, every department is getting a cut to their budget by 30% or more, they're cutting the entire summer youth program, they're cutting the Department of Education. The governor of um, New York cut Medicare, which is a, a way of getting healthcare in this country, in the middle of a pandemic, and the only budget that's untouched is the police department's budget, $6 billion for one city. And what we see that budget doing every night is cracking heads outside my door um, and tear gassing all of us. And so. Uh, people are saying no. They're saying we're not going to spend money to get ourselves and to 
for people to kill people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade to beat us um, when we protest that while we don't have the things that we need. That's what defund police is. So it is exactly what you're saying. It's a wholesale systemic restructuring of society and our priorities and how we define safety and the means that we use to achieve it. action that organizers have been demanding for the past, I don't know, five years, ten years, three decades, what have you, we start seeing glimpses of them when there's a crisis, right? So, you know, we, we not to the scale that we believe that we deserve, but for example, direct cash payment transfers to, to families. We, all of a sudden, the idea that we should start putting money in people's pockets, that $15 an hour is not enough. All of those things start going into question. And now we have Donald Trump who wants to make sure that his name is on every check. Like, it's like, okay, so <clears throat> it's possible. You know, this is possible. Or um, the release that we started to see from people in prison. You know, some in New York, definitely not enough. All the way to California, definitely not enough. But now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, maybe prison isn't the best place um, when there's like an outbreak, especially if we have all these conditions. And prison creates and exacerbates, you know, problematic health conditions. So then, then we start seeing, okay, wow, like prisons, you know, people start to pay attention and to demand to release people. You know, student debt, you know, another conversation that's been brought up. Just like, wow, so now we don't have to pay interest on our student loans, but maybe if we didn't have to borrow money from banks to go to school in the first place, like this wouldn't be an issue with a crisis. And that's also related to unemployment. It's like, okay, now the unemployment rate is highest that it's ever been in this country. I believe that's true at this point. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, connect someone's health care to whether they have a job or not. And so it's like the crisis is literally revealing all of these opportunities that people have been demanding for years. So I think that that we should like pause there. It's like it's what Naomi Klein kind of writes about in the shock doctrine. Like we have an opportunity to move towards more progressive transformational change, or we can regress and then let all of this progress get soaked up in neoliberalism. And so what happens with um, the prison and police conversation, that as people are going into the streets and they're demanding, you know, to defund police, it's like, wow, you know, in 2014, when Darren Wilson murdered Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, it was most of the popular demands were body cameras, more training, more diversity. And people have been sold on that. And they're now witnessing the failures of that. They know that we can record you kill someone, but it doesn't mean you're gonna kill less people, right? We can have more diverse police officers, 
But as you can see, that doesn't mean that they're going to be less violent. We can have more training, but that doesn't mean that the officer is going to have the will to use the training. So they're saying all these reforms just be turned on their head. And it's so, like, this is the first time where, you know, the abolition conversation, the defunding conversation are, like, at, um, they're just being amplified so much because so many people are at home and they have room to pay attention to resist. And they're mad that the demands that we've been putting on the table have not been taken seriously, which also means that more people are becoming politicized and they're learning about our longer struggles. And as long as people continue to listen, to imagine, all they need is the willpower then to implement some of the more transformational things we've been wanting. My name is Don Peter Kamal Mukoria. I'm currently incarcerated here at Lady State Prison in the state of Virginia, Virginia Supermax Prison. But um anyway, so this commentary is um we've gotten a quote from Ruth Wilson Gilmore and it's about abolition. And in this quote I found the quote is not only powerful, but I shared this quote with another comrade of mine and, and the response was almost equally as powerful which it compelled me to share this quote and see what you can make out of it. The quote by Ruth Wilson Gilmore goes like this. Abolition requires that we change one thing, which is everything. Abolition is not absence, it is presence. What the world would become already exists in fragments and pieces, experiments and possibilities. So those who feel in their gut deep anxiety that abolition means knock it all down, squash the earth and start something new, let that go. Abolition is building the future from the present in all the ways that we can. Now in response to this quote, I shared with a comrade, the response and the takeaway from it was that transformation doesn't mean destroying utterly and then creating out of nothing. It is not a phoenix rising from the ashes. It is a butterfly crawling out of a cocoon. It is not obliterated. It turns into something so entirely new. It is not even recognizable as the original. It is recreated by a brilliant metamorphosis into a new reality. But there is nothing negative or aggressive about the process. It is more powerful than destruction. It is consistent with nature's way of unfolding. It can appear to be impossible because it requires that we put the puzzle pieces together in a bold new way. But it does not take magic or faith. It is truth made manifest out of failures of our past. 
Now, I want the listeners to marinate on these two very powerful quotes and ponder on their, on their significance. Perhaps you should also form your own takeaway from these two quotes and see what you can come up with in regards to the meaning of abolition. 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 Abolition.